Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's a joy and privilege to join you this uh, morning. And Lisa, thank you so much for that kids talk. Kids, how good was that, hey? And if you can, please send Lisa a message of encouragement. If you have a Bible with you, I would love for you to turn to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. And we're going to be looking at verses, starting at verse 5 of chapter 1 and chapter 2 to 1 to 18. So we've got a bit of ground to cover this morning. Uh, here is God's word. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 5 says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? Or again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. Again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds and his ministers flames of fire. But of the son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And you, Lord, laid the foundations of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain they will all wear out like a garment, like a robe you will roll them up. Like a garment they will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. Well, friends, thanks for joining us again. If you're new to Canterbury or exploring us or even just came across our YouTube channel, thanks. My name is Shabu. I'm one of the pastors at Canterbury. This morning, we're exploring or continuing our series in the book of Hebrews. And I've got to be honest with you, there's a lot of ground to cover, and I don't know if I will do justice to the passages in front of us, but I know this is God's Word, and He will still utilize it for His purposes, for His glory. Last week, we considered this real beautiful truth that Jesus is greater because He's far more supreme and better and greater. He's the greater prophet, He's the greater priest, and He is the greater King. This morning, the writer of the Hebrews wants to get the gaze of the Jewish Christians that they're writing to, to even more to this fact, why Jesus is greater. So my prayer is this morning is for us to consider this, to see Jesus as king. And also in that, to see his humble humanity. With that in mind, would you join with me in prayer? Lord Jesus, as Phil shared earlier, it feels strange to be in this building without our church gathered. Right now the church is scattered and we thank you that you are there. Whether if it's in lounge rooms, wherever we're listening to this right now, you are here in our midst. As we sang, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. May our hearts be overwhelmed with your presence as we consider the truth in your word, whether young or not so young, whoever we are. May we walk away knowing you more, Jesus. The words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable through Christ for his glory alone. In the mighty name of Jesus we pray. Amen. What we have in the very first chapter, verses 5 to 14, is like the author of Hebrews is saying to these Jewish Christians, 
I know that you guys think that angels are great. But let me tell you something. Let me tell you that Jesus is great, and here is why. Uh, Growing up, I grew up in uh, church circles where these kind of conversations of stories of angels and, you know, a story of this particular situation and an angel was there. It was something that I grew up talking with my my friends that I grew up um, hanging out with at church. But my guess is most of us, unless you've grown up in certain Christian cultures or traditions, the topic of angels is not something you might necessarily bring up every time you hang out together in general. But in some ways, we are fascinated by anything that is seen as supernatural or anything that is seen as sort of out of this world or or seen almost like they take this picture of vision of being how powerful they are. Perhaps that's you. Uh, Maybe you're that person who is so interested in the Old Testament sons of God and the Nephilim, and you've done all that really important research on YouTube and read those articles, had those discussions on various things of supernatural things. You've researched even angels and perhaps visions. Or perhaps you've had those conversations in your workplace, at school, maybe even a family member where you hear terms like this, oh yes, my guardian angel was looking after me. And recently I had a conversation with someone who talked about their spirit angel. And then there's also the fascination in our culture, right, of things that are out of this world. Uh, Movies like Marvel Avengers and, and DC, I don't know what that means, but anyway, things like that, and I feel like every person who follows those things are just yelling at the TV at me, superheroes, you know, those people, those even like Star Wars and beings and people that are supernatural, that capture something in our imagination. Even today, when you watch Disney shows, how many supernatural things are there? You just have to say the word frozen and every kid yells and says, wow, yes, that looks amazing. We need to understand in the ancient world, in the world that the Hebrew writer is writing to, They weren't just stories. It was something that was intertwined into their culture and their world. It actually shaped how they lived. I mean, these are Jewish Christians the writer is writing to, and they're tempted to look back to traditions, perhaps even the stories of old, and maybe even add to what they already know of who Christ is. To them, angels are significantly superior Perhaps even in their mind and in their heart captures their imagination, even to the point they sound and look superior than Jesus. Now, it's not exactly clear what was going on in this church. Perhaps there was worship of angels or perhaps there was teaching coming in to uh, tempt these Christians to turn away from the gospel. But these people are actually very familiar with the stories of angels in the Old Testament. They're view of angels are most likely far greater than those of us living in the eastern suburbs of Australia. Now, if you're new to the Christian faith or exploring, I just want to make this very clear. As followers of Jesus, we do believe that angels actually exist, but they have a purpose outlined in scripture. God has created them and God has given them a purpose. Uh, If you want to really dig deeper into this, there's a gentleman by the name of Ken Hughes who's written a great work on this that I found really super helpful. 
And he talks about angels having specific functions. And here are some of the things that he shared. He said about four of them. One, they're continuously worshipping and praising God whom they serve. You can look that up in Job, Job 38, Psalm 103, Isaiah 6, Revelation 5. Angels communicate God's message to man in Scripture. So places like Acts 7, Daniel 10, Revelation 17, even the very birth of Jesus was announced by angels. And you can see that in the Gospels. Angels are also ministers to believers. You can see that in Psalm 34, Psalm 91. They were also involved in delivering the believers from prison, like in Acts 5. They also rejoice when people turn to Jesus. You can see that in Luke 15. They're very present in the moment as the church gathers in 1 Corinthians. They're watching those of us who believe in Jesus, like in 1 Corinthians 4. Also, on that final day, angels will be God's agents in that final earthly judgment and the second coming. You can see that in Matthew 24, 1 Thessalonians 4, Matthew 13, Revelation 19. It reveals who they are. They have a purpose for God and for his glory. See, when the church thinks and considers angels... They're not seeing like a little picture of Cupid with a little arrow sitting on a cloud. Their images are such as I shared earlier, but also things like when the angel wrestled with Jacob and Sodom and Gomorrah was destroyed and the angels were there. In Joshua, when the commander of the Lord's army appears. In Ezekiel 10, I would encourage you to read Ezekiel 10. There's this vision of an angels known as cherubims. It is really out of this world. They look so powerful and superior and glorious to angels, even appearing in the New Testament, would have been powerful. Author and and theologian by the name of Michael Kruger puts it this way, often when people are confronted by angels in Scripture and they realize that they're angels, their first reaction is to bow. And often the angels would say, Do not be afraid. So this church had this vision and idea of angels being so superior. And what does the writer of Hebrews say? Have a look with me in Hebrews 1 verse 4. Having becoming as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Now, we know this is continuing from the previous verses, speaking of Jesus. Why? Jesus is so much superior, even his name declares that. He has a superior name. His name is so much greater than the name of the angels. And this is a challenging thought. In Jewish thought, the idea of names are very connected to who, the very be- who they are. It reveals who they are in nature, even their very rank. And dignity. And so what we're going to see now is over and over again, Scripture quoted, Old Testament passages, connecting it to Jesus. So we have Psalm 2 is quoted. You are my son today, I have begotten you. And also quotes 2 Samuel 7, 14. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. What we're seeing is this beautiful thing that the Hebrew writer is doing. Through Scripture, the author is saying, hey, remember those Scriptures that you sort of know about or heard or maybe read to you? Well, it's actually about Jesus. It's pointing to him. Jesus' name is so much superior 
Because not, does, not only does he have the name of Son eternally as the Son of God, as a resurrected one, he's also exalted as Son. It's a declaration. The psalm once again was quoted by God himself. This very psalm that's in front of us. If you remember that beautiful picture and true story when Jesus is baptized, God the Father himself declares, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus' name as Son reveals who he has always been, reveals what he has done with his work on the cross, and because as the resurrected one, he is exalted. Jesus' name as both Son and Eternal, as the resurrected one, is pointing to the fact that he's much superior than the angels. Now, angels are impressive, and I'm sure if I ever encountered an angel, but they, I would be quite impressed, but they are messengers. Jesus is God's son, and his very name is far more superior. In Christian tradition, when we pray as followers of Jesus, and often what we say at the very end is in Jesus' name. I, I don't know about you, but I wonder when we say those things that just roll out, out, out of our tongues, we've lost the awesomeness of who Jesus is. Jesus' son is greater than any angelic being or anything supernatural that you may know of. He's the only one whose name has both power and authority, but also means that he is the son of God. Jesus is greater than the angels, and he is to be worshipped. And what now the author does as he continues in these passages is quoting passages like Deuteronomy 32, Moses' song, where it says, Let of all God's angels worship him. The writer is saying angels know who they are. They know exactly whom they ought to worship. Did you know that angels have always worshipped Jesus? In eternity past, he was worshipped in his earthly ministry, and right now, today, he's being worshipped, and he's also going to be worshipped in eternity to come. See, when the angels, when they hear or see who Jesus is, their first response is to worship. Up here on the screen, you'll see Revelation 5, verses 11 to 13. And this is beautiful vision by the Apostle John where he says, Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne, the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. If you ever feel overwhelmed in life, this is a great verse to just chew on. This is the full high defini definition picture of vision of worship of Jesus. Jesus' name and who he is moves even the very angelic beings to worship him. That means for you and I, even today, the question is, does Jesus and his very name cause our hearts to worship him still? And I don't mean just on Sundays. The writer is drawing this picture for this church. Hey, 
don't stray away from Jesus. See, even the angels worship him, and so should you. Or do you and I ever feel this temptation to ask, is there something more for worship? Is there something else? Do we ever feel like I need something more in my worship as a follower of Jesus? Or perhaps there are many things, even in our Christian worldview, that say, hey, if you want to truly experience worship, this is what you do. These are the things that you do to really experience and feel Jesus. Friends, Jesus is worshipped by the angels because he is God. And in eternity to come, we all who know Christ will be doing the same. The invitation is still today, though, to worship him now. And, you know, in, in the Christian culture, I think there's this push to add or to experience true worship. This is what you need to do. I don't know about you. I have to constantly be reminded true worship has nothing to do with you or me. It has to do with the one who has all honor, who is called to be worshipped, Jesus. Perhaps the call is to keep asking, is Jesus Christ the center and focus of your worship, my worship, the church as together? Or is it something else that's calling us to? Is Jesus the very king of our worship? Jesus is far greater because even the angels themselves, as soon as they hear him, see him, they worship him. Also, it reveals that he has a greater status. See, to the right of the Hebrew church, and particularly the language of angels and heavenly beings, there's this sort of status that they have. They're quite powerful, right? And maybe even the sense that they feel like they're all-knowing and powerful. So what the writer now is quoting from Psalm 104 makes these angels and reminds us and shows us that these angels are winds and ministers of flame of fire. Now, in Australia, we know what this is like. In more more recent times, in that terrible storm that went through the mountains, we know what a strong wind can do, the strongest tree. We also know, like bushfires, as they go, how devastating they are. There's power behind these things. So what the author wants to remind this church is, hey, the angels, they have a specific role. That is to do God's bidding. And even the imagery of inhabiting wind and fire to do God's bidding is once again connecting things in the Old Testament, like passages in Judges 13. It is to show that their very role is as servants. What the writer is doing is like if you had a, like a chart, for those of us who like systematically writing things down, on one column, you have angels. And on the other column, you have Jesus. And this is to show, as you compare the two things, how Jesus is greater, but also to show that the angels have a very purpose. And what is their purpose? To do God's bidding. So when the writer says, yes, angels, look, you know, they're fire and there's that wind, and, but remember who they are. They're servants of Jesus. And quoting again from Psalm 45 to verses 6 to 7, a psalm that have been read most likely when the Hebrew king is being installed, what now the author is saying, only Jesus can truly fulfill this. Have a look with me as I read this quote from Hebrews. Hebrews 1 verses 8 to 9. 
But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So what we're seeing here, both then and now, by using languages as forever and ever and a scepter and throne and anointed you, it reveals how Jesus is greater because he is the sovereign one, as the one who rules, as the one who has authority. And his righteousness is very established because of his work on that cross and the very joy he has as the sovereign king. It's like saying, guys, yeah, totally, like angels are amazing. And yes, they might be even powerful, but they're there to do the bidding of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the one who sends them out to do his sovereign will as king. I know in our day and age, we see movies and even like recently, you know, you can get a joyride up to space with some billionaire if you want. It feels as though that mankind has done some amazing achievements. And, you know, that wow factor is kind of taken away. And I, I find it interesting, even superhero movies and things like that, they're made to show that they're larger than life. Even the most tiniest person, great power. But Scripture shows us what true power is, true sovereignty is, true true king is, that Jesus is king because he's the son of God. He's not some made-up story. This is who he is now. And friends, this language of king is still true for you and I today. Is Jesus king, Christian friends? Do we have this vision? And when we think about him and consider him, Even the most mightiest of angels, I want you to think on that, the most mightiest of angels will bow down to him and do his bidding. Do we in any way downplay who he is? Do we just see him still on that cross and we should reflect on Jesus' sacrifice for sure, but do we also see him as king? And as the the writer continues, wants to unpack further how Christ is superior to angels, And once again, quoting from the Psalms, wants to draw it out. And I would encourage you, as you go through Hebrews, get a little pencil and write next to where the Old Testament passages are. Then flick back to those Old Testament passages and read them again. It's revealing to us how Jesus is great as the one who's eternal. And the Psalm that's quoted in front of us, it's described as Jesus, the one who has always existed, as the one who is the creator And although things will pass, and we know this, right? Things will pass, but he is the one who stays the same. He is eternal. I mean, this church that the writer is writing to are facing things in their world and culture is changing. And temptation is coming, even persecution is coming. You know, using our terms, the world around them is changing, Perhaps they're looking around and seeing maybe the angels will give them hope, maybe compromising their faith a little bit of who Jesus is will give them hope. The author is saying, hey, stop. Look to Jesus, the greater one, the one who is eternal, the one who will outlive everything because Christ is not created. He is God. Angels are created. Yes, they're immortal, but they're dependent on Christ. Yet Jesus stays the same the eternal one. 
of followers of Christ, I hope and pray that brings you great encouragement for those of us who may be looking around and thinking, oh man, how this world and this culture is changing. And you know what? It will. The question is, where is our gaze? Where is our focus? Where is our hope? That COVID would stop and we should pray? That lockdown would end? That we should pray for that? Maybe you're waiting what the news will be on Tuesday? Maybe you're hoping that we'll have more religious freedom? All these things we bring before our King who is eternal. What if Jesus is wanting us to step back for a moment and look at him as the eternal one, the one who will determine when life and the world will cease, the one who's unchanging, even if your personal or cultural or even life circumstances change. Jesus Christ is same yesterday, today, and forever. So the writer continues now to show how Jesus is greater than angels by revealing like a job description, his role or how Jesus rules. By quoting again from Old Testament from Psalm 110, uh, something that was quoted significantly in the New Testament. Actually, commentators say about 14 times this very text was quoted. And Jesus himself quoted it. It's like a rhetorical question, right? And which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? So if you're listening to this and thinking about it, you go, which angel? Come on, tell me, which angel? Give me a name, anyone. The resounding answer would be none. Is an image of a king who sits on his throne while the defeated enemies come and bow down and kiss the feet of the conquering king, Jesus the victor. Jesus is a king as an image I wonder we need to continue to grow in more than ever in our day and time. See, for the church who would have seen kings and emperors who displayed themselves as most powerful, and maybe even the angels themselves feel like they should be worshipped, the writer says they are servants of this king. To him, everyone, when confronted by who he is, will bow. The question is, will you bow in repentance and faith or bow as an enemy on that day? Christian friends, I want you to know, enemies of Christ will bow. They will be made his footstool. It's there in the passage to wake us up. It's a sobering thought, and it should move us to worship for those of us who know him and also cry for mercy. I want you to know that before Kanye West coined the term Jesus is King, the Bible has always declared this. God himself has declared that of his son. Jesus himself declared that as the one who has all authority as a king. And so the invitation is, even today, Christians come and bow to him. And seeking friend, if you're not in Christ You are his enemy. Turn to him. We plead with you. We cry out to you and come and experience his grace. And we would invite you to bow down and experience his grace in faith because the day will come and you will bow down to him either way. Jesus is the one who rules as the one who is the son. 
Jesus has superior honor. Jesus is eternal. Jesus is sovereign. Jesus is king. And he's created angels for his very purpose. They've been sent out to serve those who inherit salvation, his church. In the language in verse 14, it's like they're constantly being sent out. I just want you to imagine, right? Jesus is just sending them out, sending them out, sending them out to help God's people. They're ultimately there to serve the king and sent out to serve his children. What a humbling thought. The writer is setting the foundation of this section to declare that Jesus is superior to angels because of who he is, that he is king. And because of who he is, now in chapter 2, verses 1 to 18, the writer now moves to warning them and also encouraging them. Have a look with me in chapter 2, verses 1 to 4. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So this church that the writer is writing to is tempted to drift away, like a ship. That's the language here in the passage. The temptation is to go back to what they know or perhaps water down who Jesus is to, to, to suit their cultural pressures that they may be facing, including like making him sound like an angel. The writer is saying to them, hey, pay attention. Don't be like a ship dangerously drifting away. Now, I'm going to be honest with you. I have no clue about ships or sailing or anything to do with that. Neither am I a good surfer. But I know if I go into the ocean and I just sort of sit there and float, I will drift. I will be pushed away either by a rip or something else. Now, in this passage here, in this context, it's like saying you don't plan to drift away. It happens slowly, almost quietly. So for the church then, they're tempted to drift away from the very thing that will keep them secure, that is Jesus Christ, their King. The warning here in this message is even for them is that the angels in the Old Testament would come and proclaim, even in the New Testament, declaring who Jesus is. And if you disobeyed, there was discipline, there was judgment, there was punishment. And that judgment was seen as just. Because the very words they bought was from God himself. So there was weight there. They were bringing God's word. And so the writer's saying, listen, if they couldn't escape from God's judgment, how much more then, if you neglect the greater salvation, that has now been declared through Jesus, that has been declared through the apostles, that have been declared by witnesses, both through his word and through the wonders and miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit. And commentators say most likely, even the writing of Hebrews, there were people who would have known Jesus, seen him. What's saying is, according to his will, God's plan unfolded, all to reveal who Christ is. So the, the, the challenge is, if you know this, the warning is, don't drift, watch out. So if salvation has been declared, that is announced, it has been confirmed by the many eyewitnesses that you guys have heard of in the early church, then testified by these signs, the writer is saying, 
Even the word of the law was so binding, meaning if you broke it, there was punishment, then even more are you accountable now if you've heard the words of salvation from Christ himself and from his eyewitnesses. Listen, don't drift away, because how can you then escape God's wrath? You know, in our day and time, I don't know if you've heard this term over and over again. I hear it all the time, more than ever, I feel like. Deconstructing their faith. The number of men who have sung about Jesus, even written books about Jesus, men and women, prayed and spoken at conferences. They might even know scripture so well. They might even be seen as people who know theology Slowly, things drift. I wonder if it's often because they've made something or someone else much greater than their saviour, something or someone else much more beautiful than Jesus. This is a warning that the scripture says. Be careful. Do not drift. The writer is giving a warning. I don't know if you and I have experienced this. Maybe you are right now in the midst of it. The temptation is there to drift. So the writer is not focusing on those who have not heard the gospel or those who have heard the gospel and rejected. We're talking about people within the church there themselves. It's focusing on those who are making something or something, someone else become much greater than Jesus. That moment where you've heard, maybe those moments where you know of people Maybe you yourself have experienced this. You've said the prayer. You've been baptized. You know these things, but there's this temptation to drift away slowly and surely. Are you feeling that temptation right now, today? In your heart, there are many things calling out to you to drift. Perhaps you are wanting to drift. I can't even express to you how strong the language is here in this passage. The passage is, it's like the writer is yelling at them and pleading with them and saying, pay attention, pay the greatest attention. Who should you pay the greatest attention to? To whom? Where is our attention to be focused on? Jesus as the greater one who's greater than the angels, the one who's sovereign, the one who perhaps even today is calling to you and to me to pay attention because he is king. That warning is still true today, friends. What the Hebrew writer is constantly doing is quoting scripture after scripture. And you know, this is really challenging because, you know, in our world we talk about experiencing I'm, not, I'm all for experience and feelings. Jesus himself felt. But what we need to come back to is what Scripture says and what is the truth. Perhaps you grew up in churches that talked much about experience, but it was void of Jesus and who he is as king. Perhaps you grew up in churches that was all about Bible, 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 but yet was so void of who Christ is. Perhaps you grew up in churches that push only about the supernatural and still void of who Christ is and his sufficiency. Dear friend, maybe the best thing you and I can do is to heed this warning. Let it soak in. 
listen to it, read it, meditate on it, on who Jesus is and how greater he is, revealed through his word. Many years ago when I walked away from Jesus and God in his mercy rescued me, I remember sitting with the senior pastor of the church I grew up in. I remember sitting with him and saying things like, look, I want to go through the sovereignty of God. I want to go through, can you lose your salvation? I want to go through, um, you know, gifts of the Spirit. I want to go through about these things and so on. I had a list of things. And I remember him saying to me, "Um, Shabiru, we'll get there. Uh, Let me introduce you to Jesus. I remember looking at him going, I know who Jesus is. I grew up in a Christian home. I know the answers. But what he did was he just opened up the Gospel of Mark. And it was like this moment of just being overwhelmed afresh by who Jesus is. Do you and I need that again? Do we need to come to our King? See, when we come to our King and see him in his full glory revealed to us in Scripture, then we see him. And not only that, we also see what our role is meant to be. In verses 5 to 9, what's given to the church is a reminder to a church that is in a sense that they feel like the world that they're living in is shrinking. The author through Scripture wants to remind them what is ultimately ahead of them. Using again Scripture over and over again, this time from Psalm 8. Now, if you've never read Psalm 8, I would encourage you to read it. It's a beautiful, wonderful psalm. The author is saying, look at this creation. Wow, who am I? Yet, the author has been revealing that, yes, there's a purpose and intention for my life. Now, this is nothing new, by the way. This is God's plan. God has always intended for this, to have his image bearers, to be fruitful and to multiply. And so what the Hebrew writer is doing is connecting the dots. So talking about man is low, lower than the angels, reminding again that mankind is limited. We are limited. That God has crowned mankind with glory and honor. What a thought. And as one author put it, Adam and Eve in the Bible were the king and queen of the original creation. And God put everything in subjection to him, under them. Now, this is the moment when you and I hopefully should say something like, ah, there's something feels a bit funny about that. Yeah, that's right. We know because of sin, as we've sung that song even earlier this morning, God's given dominion became corrupted. See, when the author says, putting everything in subjection to him, left nothing outside his control, yet we do not see everything in subjection to him. This is not revealing to us. This is not how it's meant to be, but because of sin it is. But thanks be to God. The writer continues to talk to say, we do not see everything in subjection to him, but we see him. Who's that him? We've been hearing him all over again. Who is it? Jesus. Jesus is the greater one, the perfect one. The psalm now turns into showing us that Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment as the perfect son of man. This passage now is talking about him. It's a glorious picture. We've just heard how much greater Jesus is than angels. Now we see why he's even more greater because of who he is. He's willing to come down to this world lower, showing his humanity He's willing to suffer and taste death on your behalf and mine. He humbles himself. And because of his greater work, he brings us that wonderful truth. For those of us who put faith in him, we experience the spoils of what he has done. Friends, if you want motivation for your faith, 
motivation not to drift. We don't actually look to ourselves. We look to Jesus and what he has done. Look to the greater one, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who calls us, even the drifting ones, to say, look, look how much greater he is. Look what he has purchased as followers of Christ on your behalf. Yes, salvation, but also means if you are in Christ, you have great value to Christ. You'll be crowned with glory and honor. And this has nothing to do with you and me and what we do. It's because of Jesus, the greater one, the one who is our promise. He is the ultimate, as one author put it, intention for us. Then you have in Hebrews 2.10 these things. For it was fitting that he from whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The author wants to ensure and they keep understanding as a church that to follow Christ, guess what? He is indeed supreme. He's indeed greater. Guess what? That does not mean your best life now. It means that if you as a church will see Christ how he is, then you will also see that the way of the cross is suffering. Yay, sign me up! To a church that was tempted a different way, to not see Jesus greater, including that as persecution would come to this church, the writer is saying, guess what? Your suffering is not wasted because it reveals that you belong to Jesus. Often when I hear and read about the persecuted church around the globe, I wonder that's why the God is moving in these churches, that many are coming to him. Friends, following Jesus is not easy. Following Jesus might actually mean persecution that could look like in many ways even today. Yet our gaze should not be on whether are we being persecuted, but rather on the one who is greater, who's gone before us. This is why the picture is given that in a sense that the church is reminded uh, then and us too that we have these in verses 11 to 16. It's a picture of solidarity with Jesus. And there's this beautiful term given to us that Jesus is our brother. Ponder on that for a moment. Quoting from Psalm 22. The church then uh, is reminded, and we're reminded, and this quote is also from Isaiah, is connected in there, that Jesus himself would quote and say, this is about him, that those of us who put our trust in him, that we show that we've put our faith in him, that he shares in the suffering with his church, he's with them, they're not alone. And in this section, we again to see the church and to us, that Jesus is declaring the character of who God is to his brothers and his sisters. And that he is their brother to put their trust in the one who is king. But he is with them, sharing in their humanity. He's displaying also the perfect and true faith as he puts his faith in the Father. As children, they are those who know Christ. They now are invited to wait for that great future. As the one who understands what it means to be fully man, Jesus totally understands it, gets it. We have these wonderful words 
in chapter 2, 17 to 18. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. There's this really beautiful theological term that is known as propitiation. It's up here on the screen. There's a quote that I have here from a guy by the name of Lincoln Duncan. He says, Propitiation means averting the wrath of God by offering a gift. It refers to the turning away of the wrath of God as the just judgment for our sin by God's own provision of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. In this last section, we see how Jesus is great as the one who is the propitiation love of God to gain salvation for us. God himself met the demands of his holiness in his son. He propitiated himself in our place as the holy one. This is why Jesus is described as the one who has done everything. Jesus saved us in such a way that it keeps God and his holiness intact. It's a word of encouragement for this church that Jesus loved them so much that he propitiated his own terrible wrath for them. He took it on himself. What's going on here is the author wants to reveal even more how Jesus is both mediator, propitiator, and now also the helper. A church that is tempted to drift away, the author is saying, hey, look, look how great Jesus is. No angel can do this. Your past will not be able to do this. Uh, We want you to anchor in church, anchor to Jesus, the one who has gone before you, the one who fully understands suffering, who understands when you are tempted, and he will help those who are being tempted. Friends, what this does for you and me is saying, Christian friends, hang on, hang on, hang on, don't drift, look to the one who is greater, who has gone before you, the one who understands suffering, the one who understands every temptation that you face. He was tempted in every way but without sin. If we want to keep dying to our sin, the only way possible is not through angels but through the one who understands. He is our anchor. To fight sin, the best thing to do is to look to the one who understands, who has conquered sin and death. Jesus, as our mediator, in that same moment is also understands suffering, trial, and temptation. Jesus is our propitiator who propitiated his own wrath on the cross so that we don't need to be under the wrath of God anymore. Did you know this, Christians? If you are in Christ, you will never experience the wrath of of God. You may experience his discipline. You may even experience hardship and suffering, and you may be even tempted. But if you're under Christ, in Christ, what you will experience is his grace and love. I pray that causes your heart to sing. Jesus is our greater helper who comes into our world and space. He's even here today, who's sympathetic to the very temptation Think on that. That moment when you're tempted to look on those websites, you should not. We are thinking those things you should not. When you're tempted in every way, that vice that tempts you to call you to say, follow me, Jesus says, I can help you, I understand. He is the greater one who's greater than any angelic being. He is king. 
but he's also humble and glorious, that he knows exactly how you feel in the midst of your trial, suffering, and temptations. The Bible uses the language of being the forerunner. He's gone before you because he has conquered it. And he can help you in your time of need. Are you facing that today? What is your time of need? Come to your Savior. Jesus is the greater king and the greater brother and the greatest Savior who walks beside you and me. So this week, as you consider the things of supernatural things in the Bible, do you still have Jesus as the focus? And is he the one who's greater? For those who have loved ones, even in our church, who've grown up in our church, who know all the things and are drifting away, we are joining with you in prayer for every one of them. And if you are that person right now feeling tempted to drift away, we're crying out to you, we're pleading with you, call out to the Lord, call out to your fellow Christian friend, come and discover Jesus afresh again. And finally, what is that temptation that calls to you every day? Jesus knows and understands. Speak to him. Pray to him. And focus on him. Would you join with me in prayer? Lord Jesus, our great saviour and king, our brother, one who understands how we feel in various seasons of life. For those who have drifted away, have mercy, O Lord, and bring us back. For those who are tempted, cause our hearts to cling on to you. For those of us who are weary, refresh our hearts to know that you understand. And so draw our gaze to you, Jesus. Cause our hearts to see you as greater and greater and greater in every aspect of our life. We pray this in the mighty name of Christ.